Welcome to Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever's On the Wing Podcast. Buckle up and ride shotgun as we cover everything you need to know about the uplands. The habitat. The hunting. And of course, your favorite bird dogs. During episode 82 of On the Wing Podcast, almost a year ago exactly, I had a terrific conversation with Oklahoma State University professor Dwayne Elmore about quail habitat and quail hunting. During that conversation, we dove deep into the importance of shrub habitat for quail. And we've talked about that um, frequently since then in other quail-oriented podcasts, the importance of shrub habitat. But we, we talked about shrub habitat, and we also talked about the uniqueness of Oklahoma as the geographic center for bobwhite quail distribution across the country. Towards the end of that conversation with Dwayne, we also talked about his wife, Leslie, who happens to be Quail Forever's coordinating biologist for the state of Oklahoma. Today, we've got them both. We've got Leslie and Dwayne together for a look inside their quail-centric married life. And of course, we can't talk to two Oklahoma quail experts without having a uh, preview look at quail habitat and quail hunting in the state of Oklahoma. So we'll get an early forecast on the season ahead for the state of Oklahoma. But without further ado, we're going to dive into introductions. And since since he's been on the podcast before, we're going to start with a brief introduction of Dwayne Elmore before we get the real skitty from Leslie on the story of how they met their dating and their marriage, and what life is like inside a quail-oriented home. But without uh, without diving into that first, let's uh, let's welcome back Dwayne Elmore to our podcast. Dwayne, thanks for joining me again. Thanks for having me, Bob. Good to see you again. Yeah, yeah. Um, it, w- one of our our best listened to quail oriented podcasts over the course of the last year was the really interesting conversation with you. I mentioned it episode eighty two, but for folks that maybe didn't um, catch that episode or haven't listened to it yet, um, let's let's start with um, kind of your background, where you grew up, where you went to school, and and what you do for a living today. Sure. So I grew up in Middle Tennessee and uh, went to undergrad at the University of Tennessee at Martin and then uh, went to Mississippi State University and then eventually Utah State University. So all of my degrees are in wildlife biology and uh, started working for Oklahoma State University about 15 years ago. And I have two primary responsibilities, one being research. And most of that research is game bird focused, especially quail. And then secondarily, uh, I do extension work, which basically is public education. So I do a lot of uh, things like this and uh, technical uh, consultation with landowners and help state and federal agencies with any any information that they could use to, to better manage for wildlife habitat. Great. And, and, and you grew up um, as a quail hunter too, correct? I, I grew up hunting and, and fishing a lot. Uh, there weren't many quail, unfortunately, where I grew up. I, I was born a couple decades too late for that in Tennessee. Mm-hmm. And, that you know, the habitat was already really poor. Uh, and so I did, I did get introduced to quail early and, you know, sparked an interest. But it was really later uh, in college before I had the opportunity to travel and, and, and be in places where there were a lot of birds and, and, and have a dog finally. Okay. All right. So we'll, we'll transition to introducing Leslie into the conversation. Leslie, um, welcome to the podcast. I, I'm sure it's awkward to listen to back to Dwayne's first episode and hear us talking about you and, and even hear us, uh, uh, you know, start off here. Um, but I, I'd like to start with, um, you know, your background, where you grew up, and talk a little bit about where you went to school. 
But let's leave out just for a moment how the two of you got together. And we'll come back to that um, after you sort of talk about yourself and, and uh, your background. But go ahead. Where'd, where'd you grow up? Okay. Yeah. Thanks for having us, Bob. Um, I grew up in Southwest Georgia, and I grew up on a farm that raised primarily peanuts, cotton, soybeans, a few other crops over the years, and um, always had cows and horses. Um, so biology was always interesting to me. So I went to undergrad at Valdosta State University, a small university in South Georgia, and majored in biology. And uh, what really took off, uh, what really set me on my path for uh, the ecological world and the natural world was an elective I took with ornithology, uh, hmm. the study of birds. And I really um, found that fascinating and it just opened my eyes to more of the natural world. Um, after undergrad, I went to work at the Jones Ecological Research Center uh, also known as Itchaway, and it's about a 29,000 acre mm, plantation research center with several labs, and um, it's primarily longleaf pine forest managed for mm. quail and a variety of other wildlife species. And while I was there, I worked with gopher tortoises and songbirds and small mammals, including cotton rats. We would put radio transmitters on cotton rats and follow them around at night. And so my boss there, Mike Connor, said, if you can follow rats around at night, you can follow bats around at night. And uh, there's this project at Mississippi State studying bats. Are you interested? So that sounded fascinating to me. I, I took him up yeah. on the offer and moved to Mississippi State. And of course, that's where I met Dwayne. And um, after finishing my degree there, we moved to Utah, where I worked with the Department of Natural Resources for a couple of years. And then I worked with sage grouse at Utah State University. And wow. a few years later, we moved to Oklahoma, and I worked for the Division of Ag Sciences and Natural Resources for about 10 years. That's the same um, division that Duane works in currently. Uh, and then my dream job with Quail Forever opened up and I happily took it. And I've been doing that for about two years. Wow. Um, I want to touch on a couple things real quickly that piqued my interest. First is bats. You know, I, um, you know, I, there's a lot in the news over the course of, say, the last two decades on the decline of bats, mm -hmm. yet their importance. Mm -hmm. Um I'm assuming you still stay pretty up to speed on, on what's going on with bats. Um, give us an update. Where, where do bats, where, what are the, what's the population for bats look like today? Yeah. So anytime I see news or research on bats come out, it definitely catches my eye. And I, I try to stay current on some of the major issues, uh, as you alluded to white nose syndrome has decimated some populations. Um, there was a, a huge concern and fear in the beginning that it was going to completely annihilate some populations because it could knock down some cave populations by 90%. So, of course, that's concerning given the enormous importance they have as um, pollinators and pest managers. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they, they consume a lot of mosquitoes and uh, crop pests. Um, so that issue really became, uh, more prominent after I got done with my research shortly thereafter. So, so when you think about bats and your word, and it, it, you mentioned a word that immediately connects them in my mind to quail and that's, that's pollinators, um, you know, is there a connection that leads you between your work today as a quail biologist to your kind of your past with with uh, bat biology? Is it purely going direct to that pollinator habitat that benefits both? Well, in Oklahoma, one of the one of our primary uh, resource management um, 
practices is thinning hardwoods. A lot of our cross timbers and eastern forests have been unmanaged for decades. And so they've become overgrown. And one of the practices we use a lot for thinning hardwoods is herbicides. So like hack and squirt would damage and kill a tree, but leave it standing. And so that standing tree um, can actually start to decay and open up opportunities for tree roosting bats. So they can roost mm. under um, peeling bark. Uh, they can also um, forage more efficiently in that area if there are fewer limbs and leaved trees. Um, you're just going to have more open area for bats to forage, and you're going to have more open ground area for the forbs and uh, pollinator plants. Hmm. Which benefits quail. Which benefit quail, of course. I, I always like to pull on those threads or go down those roads, and it, it always mm -hmm. comes up with biologists because it's so rarely, I, it, my assessment is, and it might be off, but like a, a biologist goes to school and does a master's thesis and it's you know, like 80 percent of the time it's a species that's different than where they end up mm -hmm. you know they study bobcats and then they become a sage grouse biologist or they study bats and become a quail biologist but the and for a lot of folks i think or at least i put myself in this camp i always found that incongruent but as a podcast host, I always ask about that because it's not incongruent when you start, again, connecting the web of life and the connections between bat biology and bat habitat and what's good for bats likely can have a benefit that's good for quail, right? And mm -hmm. talk to the same, same path with, I think about a podcast probably two years ago with Jess McGuire, who studied gopher tortoises and other species you mentioned. And there's lots of connections between here, this, this gopher, gopher tortoise, right? And to the uninitiated to be like, what the heck does a gopher tortoise have to do with a Bob White quail? But the reality is, and you're shaking your head, there's a lot. A lot. <laughs> right? So, so give our listeners that maybe didn't hear that podcast with Jess McGuire, what, what on earth can be connected between a tortoise and a quail. Well, a gopher tortoise is a keystone species in the southeastern pine forest, uh, which means a lot of species rely on them, uh, not only for using their dens, but also the ground disturbance that they uh, perform. Mm. And in an area that is suitable for gopher tortoises, it's also going to be suitable for quail because the ground level is going to be fairly tree free. It's going to be more of a savanna. There's going to be lots of forbs that the gopher tortoises are eating and the quail are also eating the seeds and the bugs that are on those forbs. And uh, if a pine forest is too dense, for whatever reason, maybe it's a young pine forest and it's not at that stage yet, or maybe it's unmanaged and there are um, close can in its close canopy forest, then the gopher tortoises aren't going to be able to burrow there. So when you where mm. you find gopher tortoises, you find quail. And we see that on our on our property as well in South Georgia. Okay. Well and and you mentioned the use of the dens. That's also something that is a head scratcher to some people like Bob White quail and gopher tortoise dens, but they use those those holes as sort of escape cover, don't they? You know, I don't know. I, th I would assume that Bob White would um, fly before they would run to the, the tortoise burrows, but a lot of snakes and other turtles and small mammals will certainly run into the burrows to take cover while the, the fire passes. And it usually runs over pretty quickly. So they, they'll just hole up. And then uh, once the fire's passed over, they can return back out into the to to the terrestrial world. And likewise, quail can just flush until the fire's passed and, and safety's returned. Huh. Okay. I, I thought I had remembered Jess mentioning that they they can sort of duck into those to gopher tortoise holes to evade predators. I Do bet they Dwayne, could. Have you heard that? 
I, I think occasionally that does happen. I've, I've certainly seen Bob White do that. Uh, pack rat and prairie dog holes here in Oklahoma and scaled quail and gambles quail. I've seen both of them do it as well. So yeah, sometimes they'll use that as an evasion technique uh, to get away from a hunter or a dog. Huh. huh. Pretty cool. Um, uh, last piece that I wanted to just ask about your background, Leslie, before we dive into um, kind of the core of the story between with both of you is, is the sage grouse and Utah connection. Give us a kind of a state of the state of um, sage grouse in Utah and what you did um, as a biologist related to sage grouse. Yeah, I worked with OSU. I'm sorry. I worked with USU Extension. I worked with Utah State University Extension uh, to help be a liaison between working groups for sage grouse and the university. And it was essentially landowners and producers coming together to work together for the benefit of sage grouse and their habitat. Okay. So you've got, uh, you've got quite a variety of, of bird background, well, bird and, and bats background. So it uh, makes you well-suited for uh, being the coordinating biologist for Quail Forever in Oklahoma. Yeah, I've got to work, um, work with a lot of fun things. Yeah, no doubt about it. And they, they you know, they all interrelate. Um, it, speaking of interrelation, uh, a couple of our other podcast guests over time, Jim Inglis and Ben Jones, you guys both have connections to them. You guys all went to school together. Yeah, we were all at Mississippi State together at the same time. Those great guys. <laughs> we, we enjoyed that podcast that you did with them. <laughs> small world right yeah right? <laughs> um, all right so we're gonna dive into the a quail centric household of the elmores but let me first uh give a shout out to south dakota department of tourism and south dakota game fish and parks start a south dakota tradition in the world's greatest pla place to hunt pheasants Plan your visit and learn more about Upland Adventures at HuntTheGreatest.com. All right. So I envisioned this conversation and, and we have not pre-planned. I only know little, little bits and pieces of, of your history together. So I, um, I'm, I'm really interested to hear this story. And I've envisioned Leslie leading the conversation. Um, so, so Leslie, tell us the story of, of how the two of you met. I'm assuming it happened it happened at Mississippi State University. Mm -hmm. um, take us from there. Yeah, um, I, we did meet at Mississippi State University. I showed up on campus and went and talked with my major professor. And he said, well, I have this other student and he's going to show you around. So he introduced Dwayne and me and Dwayne took me around, showed me where to get supplies for my field season, which was coming up very shortly. And that was our first meeting and neither he nor I were at all interested in one another or anyone else for that matter. <laughs> Is that true, Dwayne? Yeah. We, we, at that time we were pretty all business focused on the okay. task at hand. <laughs> So we don't have a love at first sight. No. <laughs> no, it's it's uh it's the other version. It's a long time. So, uh, cool. We knew each other for about a year and a half before we ever looked sideways at each other in, in any other capacity. And uh, then we dated for a couple of years. One year at Mississippi State, and then one year while we were in Utah. I was in Salt Lake City working and Dwayne was in Logan working on his degree. And then I, we, after we got married, I moved up to Logan and, and we were able to live together and I eventually got a job up there. But uh, just to backtrack a little bit, I just found Dwayne fascinating. He was like no one I'd ever met before. He could talk anything from fishing to quantum physics and he was an endless source of uh, entertainment and good conversationalist. And we enjoyed our time together and had lots of commonalities. And 
uh, think we both knew after just a couple of months that we would end up getting married at some point because I just couldn't see a future without him. And I, I'm sure the same is true for him. He, he always talked about our life together when we talked about any future plans that included us. So when you, that professor that introduced you, your, your degrees or your, your, your path in school must have been pretty similar, right? Were you, did you have a ton of classes together? Twain was pretty well wrapping it up when I arrived. So we, I don't think we had any classes together, maybe mm-hmm. one, mm-hmm. but we shared an office with about 15 other grad students and we had the same major professor. So there was always that natural default to work together. And, and I learned from him a lot of the ropes and he certainly helped me with statistics as I got towards the end and I was um, analyzing my data and working on GIS mapping. He was a pro at that. So with um, going to school at the same time with Jim Inglis and Ben Jones and um, what was Brent Rudolph part of that group too? Or no. Mm-mm. Okay. I don't, I don't um, overlapped. Did you guys, so were you dating and running in that circle together at that time? There was, I mean, there, yeah, uh, towards the, towards the end, I think uh, Ben was already gone by then. Uh, but there was, a, you know, a lot of collegiality just amongst graduate students at Mississippi State. I mean, we, we had a lot of fun together and hung out together a lot and helped each other with projects. Uh, that was, you know, the fun thing about being there is we, we shared each other's successes and commensurated when, you know, when there was mm-hmm. problems. Um, so it was a great group of folks and, you know, so many of them we still uh, keep in contact with and they're all spread across the country now working for right. NGOs and state and federal agencies and, you know, doing good stuff for conservation. So it was a oh, good time. And, and Andy, Andy Edwards was part of that group too, right? Yeah. He was. I, I can't remember what years he would have been there, but yeah, Mississippi State graduate as well. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right. So how often did quail come up in your conversation? Leslie, you mentioned that one of the things that connected with you for Dwayne is how much of a conversationalist he was and how how diverse the topics could be. What was quail quail habitat quail hunting part of those conversations early on there was more talk of pronghorn and uh (laughs) turkey (laughs) he he would take off on trips to go hunt out west you know every from mississippi Um, he would go to oklahoma or wyoming and hunt out there and then he would tell me about his trips when he got back um as far as quail hunting shortly before we left mississippi state he went and picked out our first bird dog and Mm. he he and she and i went to utah and she was a fantastic bird dog hunted chucker and sage grouse and sharp tail and everything that was out there i had, had a lot of fun with her and it it introduced me to a working bird dog I grew up with dogs Mm. and and even English pointers, but they weren't used for hunting quail. (laughs) And what breed was the the bird dog that you had in Utah? She was a German German short hair. And that's, yeah. And, you know, like most people, whatever your first bird dog is, that tends to be what you stick with. So we still have German Mm. short hairs. Yeah. Uh, And, Okay. Yeah, the uh, I'll interject one thing here. So I was just getting into upland bird hunting about the time that Leslie and I met. And so eventually in conversation, it came out that her, her, uh, she was from, you know, I already knew she was from South Georgia, but that uh, she was from part of the world that is known for quail and that her family had mm-hmm. a big farm. And of course, I always say, well, I was already smitten. But that little tidbit of information <laughs> sure didn't hurt to know, to know, like, oh, okay, well, that's good. 
<laughs> so you have a uh, a destination for Christmas with a little quail right. hunt side dish. <laughs> exactly. Oh, that's terrific. And is that something you, you still do um, on holidays? You go to Georgia and, and have a little quail hunting trip connected? Yeah, very often. Yeah, we- and, um, you know, Leslie's, Leslie's mother uh, has done just a fabulous job um, managing that property. And it's got healthy population of turkey and bobwhite and gopher tortoise. And, and that's really been uh, a pleasure, you know, working together, all, all three of us, her mother, Hazel, and Leslie and, and I, trying to, to do, you know, the best we can on that property for wildlife. And Leslie mentioned, she just sent me a bullet. Make sure to ask Dwayne about an important story. Was it with your, with your, with Leslie's grandma um, that connects the back to the, that piece of property and, and the importance of fire? Yeah. So it was uh, her, her great aunt, Dorothy, great aunt. and who grew up on that farm. So that farm has been in their family, Leslie, since the early 1900s. I think late, and, late 1800s. Late 1800s. So her great aunt grew up um, there on the property and obviously seen a lot of change, you know, over, over mm-hmm. years. And, and she's, she's passed away now, but uh, you know, we had a lot of good conversations with her and one that has really stuck with me. And I think about it all the time and it actually really influences uh, the way I approach talking with landowners and trying mm. to get them to think about a culture of quail. You know, when we think about how do you manage for quail, how do you have, uh, large populations of quail. I always try to get them to think about, you know, you need to create a culture that, uh, uh, that fits quail. It's not just about caring about the few nine or 10 days a year. You might actually go hunt quail. Mm-hmm. It's, it has to be something that is central to your lifestyle because for most of the country, you have to actively manage for quail to have them. And that takes, uh, you know, a big paradigm shift for a lot of people. And, and what her great aunt told me that really stuck with me is I asked her one time, like, well, when you were a little girl in South Georgia, do you remember there being a lot of fire on the landscape? Of course, she said, yeah, all, all the time. Mm. And, I, and I said, well, you know, when did they burn? And she said, all the time. It was always mm. smoke. There was always, you know, black ground where it was being mm-hmm. burned, which that struck me first because you don't see that hardly anywhere in the country anymore. Secondarily, I asked her, well, why did you burn? Why did people do that? You know, expecting her to say, well, for cattle production or for hunting or tick control, you know, some very utilitarian objective. And she looked at me kind of dumbfounded that I would ask such a dumb question. And she said, because that's just what you do. And at Mm -hmm. first I didn't really, that didn't resonate. But the more I thought about Mm -hmm. that, I realized that was that's culture you know it was just a societal norm and it was so ingrained that well why if you own land of course you burn that's that's what that's what you do and Mm. i thought you know that is why there is still quail in south georgia and north florida it's it's so ingrained in the culture to manage the landscape in a way that happens to be conducive to quail and that doesn't exist in many places and, and mm. I've, I've thought about that a lot when I travel around the country and go to places and think about, you know, well, quail really aren't just a byproduct very often. It usually mm-hmm. takes an active management. It takes somebody to be really focused around the whole, the whole deal, you know, thinking about this 365 days a year. Right. Yeah. You don't find that hardly ever anymore where it's just, mm-hmm. well, it's, it's commonplace. To burn mm-hmm. it's what you should you you find like mowing you mm-hmm. know mow is well it's just you, you mow you mow the ditches right like that's right. that's culture but you don't find that burning what do you what do you think changed that shifted the the burning piece to make it abnormal as opposed to commonplace i think there's a lot of factors you know as land became more fragmented Parcel mm-hmm. size was smaller. It became harder. Um, you know, obviously, as as more and more people were disconnected from the land where they weren't as utilitarian focused, they weren't producing crops or or timber or, or, or livestock, then maybe they weren't using fire as a, as a tool 
for those things anymore, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and, and just slowly over time, it whittled away. And, and, you know, eventually as more and more people didn't burn or didn't want to burn, uh, the landowners that maybe still did, they began to have liability concerns about it escaping to their neighbor. And of course, as you get smaller tracts of land, it becomes harder to contain it to your land. You know, like on, mm-hmm. on, on, if you own a thousand acres and you're burning a 50 acre parcel, chances are if it happens to jump across the line, it's still on your property. But if you only mm-hmm. own 50 acres, it might be on your neighbor. And so that's just right. a disincentive for people to use that as, as a tool. It makes it harder. Yep. Yep. Becomes intimidating in a lot of ways. Sure. Yeah, Leslie. Yeah, I think that's the primary. And then secondarily is um, turpentine collection. They would put, um, they would ring a tree and put out turpentine pots to collect the turpentine sap from longleaf pine. And if fire ran through there, those would explode and, and the product would be lost. So, um, yeah, different in, uh, economic incentives became important. Yeah, yeah. A very, very clear, direct reason why somebody would, would uh, be averse to, to doing a burn on their property. Um, what I'm curious about, so if, if a journalist or a quail hunter wanted to talk quail in Oklahoma, you know, outside of the um, Oklahoma State upland biologist, you, you two, Dwayne and Leslie, represent two of the three most prominent quail, you know, biologists in the entire state of Oklahoma. So my, my question is, like, um, do you get, do people connect the dots frequently with like, oh, Elmore, Elmore, you guys must be together. Do, does that happen frequently with a reporter is like doesn't get the you know they they call Dwayne up and then they call Leslie up and they get connected or is like well I don't really like Dwayne's answer put it put Leslie on the phone like did did people connect the dots pretty frequently that you guys are 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 connected? I probably get that more than Dwayne. <laughs> Sorry, yeah. I probably get that more than Dwayne because when I visit with landowners, I'm, I frequently take materials to them to help them learn more and read more later after our visit about any number of practices. And every extension publication I hand them has Dwayne's name on it. And, and I'll get this look where they look down at their paper and then they look up at me and they look <laughs> confused a little bit. And yes, <laughs> yes, we are related by marriage. <laughs> do do has anybody like a reporter searching for co- conflict ever tried to use you like a philosophy against each other? Like, do you, do you have differences of opinion that somebody's tried to play out before? I, I don't think so. I think we're in complete agreement on everything. <laughs> <laughs> well, exactly almost everything. <laughs> Oh, that's, so, you know, day to day, you guys are both talking quail, habitat all the time. Is that something that you bring home and you talk at the kitchen table or is it like off limits? Like, honey, I've talked quail all day long. You have too. Let's talk about, you know, the Sooners. <laughs> let's, let's talk about something else. Do you guys talk about quail at home? Well, we don't talk about the Sooners very much. <laughs> or the, right, the Cowboys, right? <laughs> Go ahead, Leslie. Uh, you, you have a few things to say about the Sooners. <laughs> uh, yeah, as a partner biologist with NRCS, a lot of the recommendations that I provide landowners come from Dwayne's research. And all the herbicide recommendations, like for thinning hardwoods, or controlling introduced or noxious plants comes from OSU Extension through Duane. So working together, we've been able to identify some gaps in the resources. And by Duane filling those, uh, the managers all over the state have better and more current strategies for implementing conservation practices on their property. 
We've also had several opportunities to work together in the field. Uh, one that comes to mind right away was our first site visit. Uh, Dwayne did a training and after the training, a landowner came up to him and, and said, I'd, I'd really like for you to come visit my property and, and give me some pointers on how to improve it for deer and quail. And also, by the way, my wife and I are also interested in monarch butterflies and pollinators. And that's a large part of my job. And so Dwayne came home and told me about the interaction and asked if I'd be interested in going on the site visit. And of course I was. And so we drove over there together and uh, tooled around the property. And I learned a little bit about deer management in that part of the state. And I got to share my knowledge on monarchs. And so it was a lot of fun working together in that regard. Right on. And um, since teleworking for the last 18 months, Dwayne and I <laughs> uh, literally work side by side and it makes collaboration really easy. Um, and you might think we have like, instantaneous access to one another, but it's amusing because a lot of times I still have to send him a calendar invite so that we can have a meeting or I can, I can ask you questions about, well, how would you implement this management practice or where do I find, you know, some obscure bit of information? <laughs> so yeah, even though we can, you know, we can, we're within spitting distance of one another. I still have to set up a, set up a time when we can get together. Well, that's a sign of a strong marriage that uh, with, you know, if, within a pandemic for 18 months um, that you're within spitting a distance um, and you just use that as an analogy, but you're not actually <laughs> spitting at your, not yet. your significant other, right? <laughs> like you, you guys get along harmoniously and, and have fun, even if you have to send uh, calendar <laughs> invites. Yeah. Yeah. We sure do. I'm, I'm not spitting at him yet. Leslie's point about, you know, us working together and her coming back and saying, well, this fact sheet, could be better or or this resource is needed mm -hmm. that is really important but to have someone that you know is going to be completely honest with you like you know this could this could be different and be more helpful <laughs> and and I really appreciate that because it's helped me go back and reevaluate some of the resources and make sure that we're providing everything we can to, to help landowners better manage quail mm -hmm. right on yeah, that's a that's a great point when you have somebody that uh, knows you well enough and you know and love and respect them and they can be completely honest and be like, are you sure you want to say this? Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I have one of those people in my life, too. So, <laughs> Meredith, I hope you're listening. <laughs> yeah, I think that's true, because, you know, when it's something you're really passionate about and you know, it kind of bleeds over into different aspects of your life. And I'm sure a lot of your listeners can relate to that. You know, you have a bird dog because you like to hunt, but the dog's with you all the time. Yeah. It's part of your life. And that makes hunting matter even more because of the dog. And, mm -hmm. you know, if you have a, a spouse that enjoys the outdoors, they may or may not hunt, but they might like to camp or go with you and participate in outdoor activities. Well, that makes it more likely that you're going to do those things and leslie's a fantastic cook you know and she loves to cook wild game and also all these things kind of cross over and just amplifies you know quail so yeah we lo love to hunt quail but i also like everything about quail i like to eat them i like bird dogs mm -hmm. I, you know we like to travel to places where there are quail and and you know i like quail artwork and so it just the, yeah the line between work and recreation and it, it does become very blurred which i think is a good thing yeah. i mean i think most of us aspire right when you go when you, you're thinking about mm -hmm. what you're going to do as a career that's kind of what you hope for so i feel i feel like we're really blessed yeah it's part of both of your identity and has become part of it together and and you both seem like you embrace that you you touched on leslie's um ability to cook wild game and it, i'm super interested in that because i i that's part of the whole cycle for me like i love the dog training the pursuit the hunt and then having it come full circle on the plate a couple questions related to that leslie you, you talked about enjoying spending time in the field with your 
with your short hairs. Do you hunt as well, or are you along for the walk, or what's your what's your uh, passion related to that component? Yeah, I I do love our dogs. We've had some great dogs. We're on our third short hair, and there are there are pets as much as mm-hmm. they are are hunting, even more so. So I I really enjoy getting to watch them do what they love and see all the hard work and training that Dwayne especially has put into them come into fruition. And I carry a gun and I need to get to be a better shot. (laughs) I have yet to shoot a a bird over our, our most recent dog, our current dog, but I have, I have shot birds over our last two. And, and when you do get a bird on the plate, what's your go-to quail recipe? What's your favorite? I like to saute them in a little bit of olive oil and butter and then some fresh herbs and maybe a little lemon zest. Pretty simple. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Let, let the quail shine. And that's, well, and that's, that's what a lot of quail, hardcore quail hunters um, tend to do provide a recipe that's or, or talk about a recipe that is pretty simple that it, it the the flavor of the quail is not um oh it, it, it it's not uh obtrusive or you know it's something that's real approachable and mm-hmm. um if you if you just use a little olive oil salt pepper butter you know hard yeah. to beat that and the main thing is don't overcook it yeah you get to about yeah. medium and it's perfect so you mentioned in a, in an email to me that you guys have a quail oriented way of finding each other in the house when you don't uh, don't know where where the other is at. Uh, tell us about that. Yeah, I, I think I started it uh, rather than holler across the house for Dwayne or go out into our neighborhood and holler or at a store just roam around endlessly. I just pull out the little Bob White whistle and I know that frequency is going to carry for, for quite some, some ways. And Dwayne will call back with his lost Covey call and, and we'll, we'll reconnect. <laughs> it's just much more pleasant than, than hollering. And, and I think all our fellow customers appreciate it as well. I get a lot of smiles. <laughs> you have your own little uh your your own little spring whistle call huh that's right <laughs> and, and you know working with quail we're both very attuned to that call so it's hard to it's hard to ignore it when you hear it in the walmart checkout line it's like okay that, that's leslie <laughs> well so obviously i've got to ask you to do it on the podcast so, Leslie, you could start. Uh, get, give us your whistle call to Dwayne. Oh, I might have to wet my whistle. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Dwayne. <laughs> oh, that's classic. I love it. <laughs> it works. It yeah, works. well, it's perfect. it works unless you're at a wildlife. Um, it, it works unless you're at a wildlife professionals meeting, and then everyone turns my way. Yeah, <laughs> and everybody's ringtone is a quail. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I love that story. That is so perfect for you too. Thank you for thank you for sharing it on, on the podcast with us. Um, all right, so we'll transition a little bit and talk about the state of quail habitat and the state of quail hunting in Oklahoma. Um, I'll start with with Leslie and give us sort of an overview on the state of habitat in Oklahoma, and then we'll turn it to to Dwayne for a, a little bit of a preliminary hunting forecast. And, and I'll preface this with, you know, we've we've talked on a lot of episodes over the course of the last couple of months about the drought <clears throat> that's been occurring, uh, particularly in two parts of the country. The Northern Pheasant Range, uh, the Dakotas, Minnesota, Montana have been under extreme drought. We've talked a lot about that. 
And then I just got done doing a podcast about the, the Southwest, um, Arizona, California, Nevada, it, it, also in a really extreme drought. When I look at drought.gov, Oklahoma seems to be, relatively speaking, and has have escaped the drought for the most part. So um, thankfully, I don't think this is a drought-focused conversation, but you could tell me. You guys live there. Let's start with Leslie. How's the habitat uh, in the state of Oklahoma for quail? Yeah, as you mentioned, we've gotten some pretty timely rains this year. We had real good rains in the spring, almost too much. Um, so everything was really green on into July and, and just looking great. Um, the CRP has really exploded this year. We've gotten a lot of uh, contracts for CRP out in Western Oklahoma. And my coworker out there, Tanner Swank, has just been completely covered up with doing CRP evaluations and that's that's fantastic news for our grassland birds because they're they're really going to respond well to these uh, large acreages being um, managed for uh, improving their habitat. Hmm. So that's good news. So it, it leads you to believe, um, you know, as as folks look towards the quail hunting season ahead, we might have some increased numbers of, uh, uh, of quail in the state of Oklahoma. Dwayne, maybe tack on to, to, to Leslie's thoughts there about uh, improved habitat conditions. So, yeah, it, you know, Western Oklahoma, uh, as I think we talked about in the previous podcast, because it's so far west and ha the habitat tends to more or less stall in good mm. conditions for quail, we generally always have decent habitat in the western part of the state it's more weather cycle, it cycles with weather. So our big problem here is that we have droughts that really lower bird populations and it takes a while to climb out of those. And we also sometimes have severe weather. This, what's hurt us this year is we had just a, a catastrophic uh, cold in February mm. and it, you know, it stayed below zero for multiple days. Um, high, uh, wind chills or, or low wind chills rather and uh snow and ice and we know we lost a lot of birds you know we had uh, a project mm. going on in southwest kansas and you know a good portion of the birds perished during those few days of, of terrible weather so we were already kind of at a low number uh, because of the past few okay. years of limited production and that put us in even further so leslie's right we've had fantastic weather this year really almost ideal for game bird production, but we started at a really low level coming out of the winter. Gotcha. So what hunters should expect is to find a lot of young birds this fall in, in Oklahoma, mm -hmm. but there weren't a lot of adults. So we'll probably be, we should be better than last year, but last year wasn't great. So I would expect kind of an average hunting season for Oklahoma. It's not okay. going to be stellar but there'll be a lot of young birds um, that hunters encounter. And um, if we can get one more year like this, so if, if 2022 is the similar weather, we could really boom. So cross your fingers for next year, but this will not be a boom year uh, because of the low numbers we started with. But other areas around us could also be really good. I'm hearing great reports from South Texas. I mean, it could be fantastic in areas down there. Mm. Eastern New Mexico should be really good. And you mentioned, you know, the drought. Uh, Arizona has been hit hard by the drought, but they've had one of the best monsoons that they've ever had in Southern Arizona. Yeah. So the Merns are going to respond because the Merns track late summer rains. And the, uh, but the situation is similar with us that the Merns population started really really low so even a fantastic year of production the merns hunters should temper their expectations for this fall because we need two or three years like that in a row for the quail to explode okay what about scalies in oklahoma i know there's a decent population of scaled quail in oklahoma yeah the reports i'm hearing are uh are, are pretty good you know people are reporting broods and they're large broods and, uh, you know, we have a, an, an app 
that OSU released where hunters and, and landowners can enter the brood observation. So I keep a close eye on that and it's looking pretty favorable. It definitely looks better than last year. And we're about to start mm. trapping scaled quail next week. And I'll have a much better idea in about a month huh. on, on exactly what the scaled quail population looks like, but I'm anticipating it will, it, it should be a lot better than it was last year. So you got a research project coming for scaled quail that you're trapping them for. What tell us about that a little bit? Yeah, that's in southwest Kansas in cooperation with uh, the Kansas Department of Wildlife, Parks and Tourism, their state agency, and also with the U.S. Forest Service. It's on the Cimarron National Grassland, and we're studying uh, winter ecology. So actually looking at where scaled quail are during the fall and winter and what kind of uh, vegetation they use and what their survival looks like. Hmm. And, and we're in our second year of that project. So we'll have more, more to say about that in another year. Fascinating. Well, that's terrific. I, <clears throat> I, I've talked about it before. Scale quail are, are just wonderful little birds and, and um, probably underappreciated by America's upland hunters. And, and it's always nice to hear that about research being done to learn a little bit more. They're just um, just a fantastic bird in their own right. They're a terrific bird to hunt, and and they also taste great too, which which they get the trifecta, right? That's right. So yeah. they 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 do like to run, which uh, you've got to have your track shoes on to hunt. But, but that's all. That's all right. right. I like the challenge. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So as we as we move towards closing thoughts, um, I'll ask you each for your final thoughts as we close out this this particular episode. But I do want to uh, welcome a new partner to the podcast, Alps Outdoors, and uh, um, we've got a new new challenge for for our um, listeners out there. Pheasants Forever and Quail Forever have partnered with Alps Outdoors to challenge hunters to preserve America's outdoor lifestyle by taking a new or lapsed hunter afield this season. Our Hunter Mentor Pledge is our organization's critically important call to action to unite all sportsmen and women across the country. To inspire new participants and encourage mentors, we are providing some great incentives, including a guided hunt for one mentor and a new hunter. This season, let's rally the Upland community to grow our hunting heritage and support wildlife habitat conservation because our future depends on it. Learn more and take the Hunter Mentor Pledge at pheasantsforever.org slash mentor pledge or quailforever.org slash mentor pledge. Thanks to Alps Outdoors and thanks to all the mentors teaching new people to hunt this season. You're helping to save our outdoor lifestyle. All right. Closing thoughts. Leslie gets the final thought. So we're going to go to Dwayne first. Uh, closing thoughts on, on life is uh, as a married couple living in Oklahoma that uh, centers around quail. What are your final thoughts for the episode, Dwayne? Well, clearly with both of us working in the wildlife profession, it's, it's, you know, easier to see how our, our, our interest would intersect. You know, there's a lot of commonality, of course, but I guess I would just say that, that, that's real, it's really important to, you know, to find things that both you and your spouse are passionate about. So, you know, mm -hmm. for any listeners out there, uh, any way you can, find ways to connect you know maybe your spouse doesn't hunt but they might like dogs or they might you know they might mm -hmm. like some other aspect that can then help you find uh, a shared passion things that you enjoy doing together and I, I i guess i would just encourage folks to look for opportunities like that because i mean you know i get a chance to spend a lot of time with a lot of great people in the field but i mean truly there's none i'd rather uh, spend time with and Leslie and and it's just so, it, you know so nice to have things that we can talk about and, and shared interest and and quail is certainly a big part of that I think that's that's a home run of a point um I I absolutely agree with you my, my wife Meredith you know didn't grow up in a hunting family and and frankly doesn't carry a shotgun 
but she loves the hell out of um, taking a walk in the field behind behind our short hairs. You know, she hunts with a camera, you know, having capturing photos of of the dogs and the habitat and the terrain and the birds. And, you know, the days of, you know, sort of that stag, you know, hunting's all about just a guy activity are, are over. And, and that's, that's good. In my opinion, I, mm-hmm. I wholeheartedly agree with you, Dwayne, that the, my favorite person to bird hunt with is my wife. And, and that's brought us closer and she has a greater appreciation for, what I care about as a, you know, deep in my soul. And that's made us a better married couple too. That's a wonderful point. Um, Leslie, what do you think? What's, what's your closing thought for this episode? So when spouses have similar degrees or similar work experiences uh, and work in the same field, it, it can be challenging to find relevant jobs in the same area We've seen this with other couples and we've definitely experienced it, but when the best case scenario happens and both partners can work together and even learn from one one another, um, it's enormously rewarding. And Mm. I consider myself uh, very fortunate because I get to see my husband in his element, doing what he loves and uh, what he's so talented at. It's very enjoyable. Yeah. Yeah, it, that makes a ton of sense. It's um, it kind of completes a well-rounded relationship where, mm-hmm. you know, and it, it, you know your marriage is fail-safe when you know you're ended up spending so much time. Like there is an element of you know, for some people, you go to work to sort of have you know that own um, space and matter of identity. But when you ha- work in the same field with somebody, and you still are completely connected in love and you know who you are and who they know who they are and it all works together boy that's that's kind of a magic spot and it's because it it happens i think a lot when you go to college right so many people find their significant other at college and it does tend to be in the same kind of department right and then you you end up like you say, trying to find jobs in the same area. And that can be a real challenge. And you guys are, are so blessed that, that you've been able to sort of take this road that's led through Utah to, to end up together in, in Oregon or Oklahoma now that um, you both are, are, seem to be extremely happy both from a career perspective and, and from a personal perspective. And it just, it's just wonderful to, to hear your story and, and have you share it with us on, on this episode. And the quail world and quail forever, really blessed to have you both as part of the family. So, so thank you for kind of putting yourselves out there for this episode. It's been really enjoyable. Well, thank you thank for you that. For I hope, hope it was enjoyable. for the. Well, it, it's one of my, my all time favorite moments from doing this podcast for the last couple of years was you, both of you whistling. So we're going to close out that episode this episode with that one more time because that was just a that was just podcast gold. So we'll close the episode with uh Leslie whistling to to Dwayne. Here we go. Go ahead, Dwayne. <laughs> I put we you both on We have to go find each other now. <laughs> I, need some, I need some water. My lip is dry. <laughs> well, thanks for being good sports. I put you both yeah. on the spot twice. So uh, yeah. that was that was really terrific. You guys have a wonderful story and congratulations on a terrific marriage and and. Thank you so much for what you do on behalf of Quail and Quail Habitat for all the hunters and Quail Forever supporters out there. Um, really, really appreciate you sharing your story. Uh, all right, folks. Um, it, please, if you're not already a member of Quail Forever, Pheasants Forever, 
Um, please uh, join our organization. We're filled with terrific people like Leslie and Dwayne. We can't all whistle like them, but uh, we, we, our hearts are in the right place for Habitat, for upland birds, and, and really the web of life. Go for tortoises and bats and clean water and uh, public access and good bird dogs. So hopefully um, this hits home for you and you're interested in joining our organization. Um, thank you for listening. I'm Bob St. Pierre reminding you to always follow the dog. Something good will rise. Thanks, folks. <laughs>